Okay, 12.30, let's get started. Some of you have busy days to get back to. <clears throat> Thank you for coming. Welcome to Ruth's Chris Bible Study. Uh, we do this every week. We record it, video and audio. We put it on the podcast and on YouTube. So go to SoundCloud, go to iTunes, search Disciple Dojo, subscribe. Even if you come here, you should still subscribe to it because that helps us as a ministry. The more subscribers, the more we rise in uh, podcast rankings and eventually able to get some funding through that. So please subscribe. Tell people to subscribe. They don't even have to listen. Just subscribe. I don't care. Um, <clears throat> but no, we are trying to build this because this is an entirely nonprofit ministry. Um, all of your donations that you put in each week go right to the ladies in the kitchen that bring all this food out for us. So Jeff, the owner of this restaurant, doesn't make money. He actually loses money from this. And I as well don't make any money from this. So we are entirely support-based, and we want to continue that, and we want to continue to make all of our resources free. We're going to be moving to that in the fall, making our entire curriculum line of DVD resources absolutely free to stream. We'll still continue to sell if people want a DVD version for their church library or something, but we really want to make everything free, uh, and the only way we can do that is through faithful support. So keep coming. Keep enjoying the food. Uh, follow us online. Disciple Dojo is just jmsmith.org and uh, Facebook, social media, all of that stuff. If you don't know what that is, don't worry. It's what the kids are doing these days, and they just need to get off your lawn. So don't even uh, sweat it. We're glad you're here. Um, this Bible study's been going on for about four years now, and it continues to grow, so that's really cool to see. Jeff and I, when we first started, we wanted this room to be packed. We wanted it to be filled up. We wanted people to come and know that when they come on a Tuesday, they're gonna get a hot meal, and they're going to get uh, straight from the Word of God. And that's what we've been doing. So we've been going through the Old Testament. We're in Numbers chapter 22. So the book of Numbers chapter 22. If this is your first time, uh, we just do go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Old Testament. I, I just shared an article today on Facebook, actually, that Christianity Today put out that talked about how the Old Testament is so unknown to the majority of Christians. And, um, and how people just focus on the New Testament. So we specifically focus on the Old Testament in this study because it's the foundation of everything Jesus taught. Jesus, Jesus didn't introduce anything that's really new. And that sounds heretical to say in our day and age, but it would not have been heretical for Paul or Peter or James or John or Jude or any of the first apostles who preached the gospel entirely from the Old Testament and the events that they knew personally about Jesus. And that's what it is. It's, it's the foundation of all of Israel, and Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, so knowing the Old Testament helps us know Jesus. So that's why we study it. And that's why we see the overarching pattern. So last week, we started chapter 22. Now Israel had come out of Egypt. They'd been in wandering, not wandering, well, yeah, they've been wandering for about 38 years or so. This is at the tail end of that first generation dying out. The second generation is going to arise officially and take the reins in Numbers 26 with the second census that comes up. But this is the end of this last generation as the old are dying out and the new are rising up and God has moved his people from the wilderness of Sinai area, which would be modern northwest Saudi Arabia, parts of the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, move them up through the territory of the Moabites, the Ammonites, all the people in what's called the Transjordan. So if the uh, sea of Galilee is up here, the Dead Sea is right here, the Jordan River flows down, right here in the middle is where Israel is going to come into the promised land, which is Canaan. But on the way, they have encountered tribes 
uh, people from those particular peoples called the Canaanites who have come out to attack them and make war against them. And so Israel, because they are in obedience right now to God, covenant obedience, they're walking in faith with him. They're carrying out what he's uh, required. He's doing what he said he'd do in the covenant, which is he's leading their armies, he's fighting their battles, and he's allowing them to overcome incredible, incredible adversarial forces. So they destroy these, uh, these two kings in particular that come out to attack them. And a third king, a guy named Balak, gets word of this mass of people coming up out of the, the wilderness. This rabble of slaves that are somehow overthrowing armies. So what does he do? Well, he does what you do in the ancient Near East when you want to ensure victory. You bring curses. You bring the gods into it. You bring the gods into your fight. Get them on your side they curse the enemy, then your army can go in and beat the enemy. That's just how they thought the warfare worked back in the ancient world. And so that's what this pagan uh, prophet is called in to do, this guy named Bilaam. Now it says in your Bibles, Balaam, but in the Hebrew, it's Bilaam. It's how you say his name. Uh, that's how I'm going to refer to him if that freaks you out. Uh, too bad. Uh, so Bilaam is this prophet that's known about in the ancient world. He's known of. We have inscriptions of him. I shared one last week. There's inscriptions of Bilaam and his prophetic ability, his ability to call to the gods to do incantations and get the gods to do something that enables the person he's working for to experience victory or blessing. That's what sorcerers, that's what magicians, that's what diviners, that's just he, people that work in the spirit realm, they did that back then. By the way, they still do that today in many parts of the world. Um, we just are living in a part of the world that doesn't really believe in it. Whether or not it's true, we don't know. We don't really care. Our, our spiritual forces are a bit more tangible. They are, have a lot of ones and zeros in them. They have bank accounts. That, you know, We have our own spiritual forces that we believe immaterially govern the world, but in the communities where spirituality and, and shamanistic beliefs are still rampant, this is very much par for the course. You know, there are Christians in the developing world that will go to church on Sunday, but when their kid gets sick, they go to the shaman because they know that the shaman will get them results that the church may not, which is an indictment on the church, if anything. But the point is that the spirit realm, we just kind of, this whole story is ridiculous. In the ancient Near East, this story would not have been as ridiculous as we think it to be. So King Balak hires this guy, Bilaam, to come in. And the thing that's so surprising about this text in this section, Moses is never in it. Moses is not in this section. The spokesperson for Israel becomes a pagan prophet, not Moses. And, and there's a whole theme of turning things on its head throughout this section of the Bilaam saga. And it's intentional. It's literary. It's very real. There's motif. There's reoccurring patterns. This is a story that probably circulated widely, even, even outside of just numbers. This, this was, would have been known and retold. But the point is that God is showing through this just what He said in Jesus. You know, Jesus said, hey, if they don't praise me, even the rocks will cry out. You know, like Jesus said, all creation is the Lord's, so something's going to acknowledge the God of all creation. And so what in this chapter we see is Balak summons this guy, Bilaam. Bilaam has this encounter with God, and, and God kind of tests his motives. We talked about that last week. Catch the podcast if you missed it. But we saw that Bilaam's motives were questionable at best, 
Uh, he's not a bad guy at this point in the text. He is, he is a genuine prophet of Yahweh, not a generic God. He actually has a relationship with the covenant God Yahweh, which is why it says capital L-O-R-D in your text throughout this section. Um, that's God's covenant name. So someone outside of the promised line of Israel knows the God of Israel. We saw that in Genesis with Melchizedek. We'll see that elsewhere in Scripture when these pagans, these people that aren't supposed to get it, somehow we realize, oh, God's working outside of Israel. He's doing something outside of Israel. Now, we don't know what. We only know what He's doing with Israel, and Israel is the means by which He's going to reach the entire world. But that doesn't mean He's just ignoring the Eskimos and the Aborigines and the Sub-Saharan Africans and all these other peoples. No, He's the God of the world. He's the God of the nations. And he does care about them. So we see this. It's hints, glimpses, echoes of God at work in the pagan world. And so Bilaam gets up, and we're going to pick up at verse 21. Um, this is the part of the story that most people know about Balaam and his donkey. Verse 21, Bilaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went, to the, went with the princes of Moab. These are the people that had come, the, the chief folk that have come to kind of woo him to, to come be their spiritual hitman. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. We talked last week, to, to be Satan to him. That's literally that verb, to Satan him. Uh, and, and we check the podcast if you want to know why did God tell him to go and then got angry with him. There's a couple of possible reasons. Scholars have different opinions, depending on how you read the story. It doesn't matter. The point today, this week, is <clears throat> God, Bilaam has a thing that he wants to happen getting to this uh, payday, this speaking gig, so to speak. And God, the angel of the Lord appears, and we, we know from the angel of the Lord's appearances all throughout Torah, this is God in angel form. The angel who is the Lord. It's an appositional genitive. The angel that is Yahweh appears and blocks him. Bilaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Bill and beat her to get her back on the road. Now, right here, this is already ironic. What is Billam renowned for? His ability to see into and manipulate the spiritual realm. What is standing right in front of him? God Almighty. Who sees it? His female donkey. <laughs> All right? His older translations may say she ass, which is a different connotation in today's culture, so we don't use that. That's why translations get updated. She ass has a different meaning in modern English than it would. But um, it's his, his female donkey. She's the one who sees the angel, not Billam. He's just, get back on the road. You know, beats her with his rod, staff, whatever. Verse 24, Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. So in, in, in this area, you go uh, to this part of the world, vineyards would be enclosed, some of them, and there'd be stone walls. So a road might go between them to get across this vineyard. You've got to go between these two stone walls. And so it could be kind of narrow because they want to use all the land that they can for growing the wine. So in one of these narrow passages, the angel comes and stands um, with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Bilaam's foot against it. So he beat her again. So she's trying to get around this. Angels, we've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. How we got the idea that angels are beautiful or cute or chubby babies or 
even the term angelic, we use that to describe a woman's face. That's super insulting, actually. Because angelic means, something being angelic in the biblical sense means it's terrifying. So if I say you have an angelic face, in English, that's nice. But in biblical parlance, I'm saying you terrify me. So it's, it's one of, I don't know, I mean, I do sort of know through the history of art, but it's just such a silly thing. Angels are terrifying. Always have been. There's not a single instance in all of Scripture that I know of where an angel is not terrifying and awe-inspiring when they're revealed. Sometimes they're in secret and they're just normal, but never as a chubby baby. Uh, so just get that out of your minds. So this warrior being that is God, God, the warrior king of Israel, standing there with a drawn sword. The donkey tries to get around, cracks his foot up against the stone wall. If you've ever stubbed your toe in sandals, think of that. That's what's happening. So he beats the donkey again. Verse 26, Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place, like even narrow, where there was no room to turn, either to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Bilaam. And he was very angry, and he beat her with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Bilaam, Now just pause right there. This is where people check out. There's a theme all throughout Scripture. What did Moses say when God said, go to uh, speak to Pharaoh? He says, I, I'm, I'm slow of mouth. I'm, I, I can't speak. And what does God say? Who created the mouth? Okay? This is not teaching that in Bible times people believed animals could talk. That's a dumb, dumb, dumb critique that people who are usually dumb throw against the Bible. Now, people who are not dumb, but who still don't believe the Bible, they're more charitable in their critique. And they understand, yeah, this is, this is specifically said to be a miraculous event. So when you hear somebody, yeah, Bible, they just believed in talking snakes and talking donkeys. No, they didn't. That's what's so crazy. That's why there's only one time that this happens in the Bible. And that's why it specifically says, God opened the mouth of. Now, what does that mean? Have you ever seen a donkey? Anybody? Have you, seen, have you ever seen their mouth structure? How would a donkey make words? How would a donkey's mouth? I mean, those of, some of you may be speech pathologists or you may know people that work in the speech field. You need specific physiological functions to speak. There's a reason animals can't speak. Their mouths, your larynx, your voice box, all of it working in conjunction to produce these sounds called speech. Well, donkeys don't have that. They can't have that. It is physically impossible for a donkey to speak. That's part of this. That's the part of the story. So, does that mean God authored the donkey's vocal cords and its cortex to make it connect, brain connect and make these speech sounds and blah, blah, blah? I don't know, maybe. Or, did God open the mouth of the donkey, meaning Bilaam uh, hit the donkey and the donkey went, or whatever donkeys do, and in his, he heard God made that communication communicate to him what he says here. In other words, was it a case of opening the donkey's mouth, also opening Bilaam's ears so he could hear and understand the donkey? Remember when God spoke audibly at Jesus' baptism, some people said, oh, that was just thunder. Right? So when Saul saw the, the road to Damascus and he had the appearance of Jesus, the people that were with him, they heard something, but they didn't really understand what it was. 
So is that the case going on here, that, that this donkey just donkeyed? You know, it just made the, the heah or whatever. And in that, Bilaam, who now was given this insight into God, heard or, or entered into this experience? Was this more of a somewhat of a dream state experience rather than just a straightforward, you know? We don't know. But we get some clues because, look, when the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, the donkey said, what have I done to make you beat me these three times? Bilaam was surprised and astounded that his donkey had ever... No, it doesn't say that. It says, Bilaam answered the donkey, you've made a fool of me. If I have a sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now. Okay, so this is not weird to Bilaam. I mean, we don't get any indication in the text that he is surprised by this. He is, he is a pagan prophet. He works in divination. He works with reading the remains of animals' uh, entrails to determine what the gods are going to do. That was one form of divination. Or looking at, you know, like tea leaves or all this kind of... I mean, he, he is in the realm of the supernatural. It's what he does. So his visions, his, his, his experiences, his, um, his job training has made it so that this doesn't, at least from what we see in the text, this isn't a surprise to him. He's used to weird things happening when it comes to the human and the divine and the creation realm. And so I think that's worth noting as well, is, is that this tells us he is moving in those circles of the unexpected, the supernatural. And that's what's going to continue to happen. So he answers, he says, you made a fool of me. He's angry, if I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now. He's lashing out at this donkey who's doing what he's supposed to do, which is seeing and communicating with the God of Israel. But he's mad because his, his path is getting blocked, his foot is getting stubbed, he, he looks silly because his donkey won't move and he's got these princes of Moab with him and he's supposed to be this, I'm in control of the world and nature. So he lashes out at the one innocent party in all of this, the one who's actually paying attention to God. That in and of itself is a whole sermon. How many times have you been exposed with your shortcomings and your failures and your temper and you lash out at the person who actually is the one who's got it right? Because it makes you feel a little more in control of things as things are spinning out of control and donkeys are talking to you. So in and of itself, if those of you that are ministers, tuck this one away for a future sermon, but it'll preach, as they say in seminary. <clears throat> so he goes on to say, um, verse 30, the donkey said to Bilaam, so this is still this continued supernatural weird communication event. The donkey said to Bilaam, am I not your own donkey? You've always ridden me to this day. Have I, not, have I ever been in the habit of doing this to you? And then Bilaam kind of realized, no, no, he said. Then the Lord opened Bilaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. That's what you do when you see God. You don't high-five buddy Jesus, right? You fall face down. You experience the overpowering majesty of the God of all creation. So the angel of the Lord asked, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I've come here, I've come here to oppose you. Again, that verb to Satan, to be your adversary. I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. Now, some of your Bibles may not say reckless. It may say I don't know, what does it say? You might have a non-NIV version. Your path is a perverse. Yeah, anybody have a different one? It's um, this word, uh, yarat, it's just this word this, that, that this is the only time it appears in the Bible. It's called a hapex legomenon. 
So scholars are really conjecturing. You know, a good tr Bible translation will have a little italic footnote there, and at the bottom it'll say, H-E-B uncertain, or something like that. And it'll basically mean, the Hebrew word here is a little uncertain, but contextually and, and based on linguistics and cognate languages and all that other stuff, we think this is the best translation, but we're really not sure. And that's the case in this, is, is, is the verb, I mean, the word just, it's sort of an adjective, it means slippery, uh, you know, uh, reckless, twisted, dangerous, winding. I mean, any of these, we just don't know exactly what he says. But he's saying, I've come here to oppose you. You are walking on thin ice, we might say. Uh, something along those lines. But he's saying, I've come here to oppose you. The, here's, you know, here's the, the um, you just got served moment of this passage. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared her. Your donkey is more spiritually attuned than you are, Bilaam, the renowned prophet of Mesopotamia. Your donkey gets it. You don't. Your donkey is not a dumbass. I had to work that in there because that's <laughs> literally this is a story about not a dumbass. It, it can speak. It is an ass. And if you giggled at that, great. Because it appeals to our inner third grader, all of us. So I would have killed you, but I would have spared her. Verse 34, Bilaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Duh. Now, if you're displeased, I'll go back. The angel of the Lord said to Bilaam, go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Bilaam went with the princes of Balak. So God is making it crystal clear here. This is not a safe journey for you. You are, you are going for money. Remember, this is why he's doing this. He's paid a handsome price to go curse a people. And these are people that you're not going to be able to curse because I've blessed them. That's what God says. But yet, Bilaam still went and said, well, maybe God will change his mind. Maybe he'll give me something I can say. Maybe there's a way I can salvage this payday uh, in plying my trade. And so God's saying, he says him through this, go, but tell, say only what I tell you. So now Bilaam has kind of come to his senses, and in the next couple of chapters, he's going to do that. He's going to speak. And what's interesting is, the next few chapters are going to mirror this experience. See, this talking donkey thing wasn't just a random occurrence. Three times, Bilaam was intent on getting an outcome, moving along on this journey. Three times, God opposed it. And three times, this talking donkey was stuck in the middle. A very precarious situation. Face God's wrath or face the anger of my master. Well, that's exactly what Bilaam's going to be put in in the next two chapters. Three times, he's going to be told, okay, here's, here's Israel, go curse him. And three times, he's going to have this encounter with God. God's going to actually meet with him. And three times, God's going to give him something that is complete opposite of what his master, in this case, wants him to do. So he's going to be stuck. And so the donkey image for sure would have been percolating in his mind throughout all of this. And then there will be a fourth oracle, unlike the donkey, like a final pronouncement that'll just be basically a cursing of, of the King Balak to begin with. 
So in other words, there's, it, you've got to see when you're studying Old Testament, you're not reading a scientific account of history. You're not reading a newspaper report of the events. You're reading a literary, crafted, a carefully crafted literary account of what's going on. Nothing is accidental. Nothing is incidental. Now, we may not know all of the reasons that a verse is given or all of the reasons that something is mentioned. There may be layers of meaning that we haven't peeled back yet. It's a big onion. But we need to have that mindset of looking for, why is this? Why did it say this? I wonder. And then you go and you dig a little bit. You scratch the surface. You see what others who have spent their lives studying this passage say. You read other commentaries. You read other study notes. You don't just rely on one TV preacher or one Ruth's Chris teacher. You, you go everywhere. You look at the sources. You listen. You have a discerning ear because God's truth is out there in the world, but you have a discerning ear. You don't take it at face value, but you also don't become a professional skeptic. Just somewhere in between there. Uh, but that's how you do Bible study. Eventually you, you, you start to hear things in the text or see things that you had, no, had not noticed before. So when we finish up uh, <clears throat> verse 36. When Balak heard that Bilaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on, Arnon, on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. Balak said to Bilaam, did I not send you an urgent, uh, urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? In other words, is my money not good enough for you? Now this journey we said last week, this is a 400 mile journey from where Bilaam lives to where Balak wants him to be. That would have taken about a month, 25 days, somewhere in there. So this played out over a long period, this journey on the donkey. We don't know, it might not have even been the same day that he beat the donkey. It might have been a couple of days apart between each one. We don't know, but again, it's telescoped, it's condensed. So, <clears throat> Bilaam's response, verse 38, he says, Well, I've come to you now, Bilaam replied, but can I say just anything? No, I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. So he's learned his lesson from this month on the road. He's realized, I can only say what God tells me. Doesn't matter what you pay me, I want you to pay me, because I'm still Bilaam the greedy prophet, but I know that I can only say what God says, so I'm going to build this in right up front. You may not like what you hear. All right. So, verse 39, Then Bilaam went with Balak to Kiriath Chuzoth. Uh, it means city of plazas, city of marketplaces. I don't know, maybe it was like a more populated area or something. Uh, Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep and gave some to Bilaam and the princes who were with him. That would have been a feast time, by the way. Remember, sacrifices in the ancient world were primarily how you got your meat, especially in the pagan world. You didn't, you know, only in Israel where there's some sacrifices completely devoted, the rest, usually, you'd offer up a part, the priests would get the best part, the worshiper who's trying to appeal to the gods would get the leftovers, and then you'd have like this feast, this, this meal. So just think of a, bar, a pig picking, or, well, it wouldn't be pig, um, but like a, you know, a barbecue or something. Well, actually, it might be pig because they're pagan. But uh, regardless, they, they sacrificed... They have a meal, you know, gives them some of the animals, and the animals were also money as well as food. Verse 41, the next morning, Balak took Bilaam up to, and this is where I think the NIV misses it, because they just translate this as a proper place name, Bamoth Baal. Uh, but Bamoth is just a, a, a normal word. It means high places. It's just it's a term, high places. And Baal is the pagan god Baal. So 
it's, it's much more likely that it should read the next morning, Balak took Bilaam up to the high places of Baal or to the shrine of Baal. To the shrine of the... Why? Because they're in, they're in Baal's territory now. They're in Chemosh's territory if they're over here. They're Baal territory here. There's Asherah's territory here. The gods were territorial. So taking them up to... We're going to go up to... You know, he's a, he's a, a Canaanite king, so you take him to your church. So we're going to go to our church so that you can pronounce a curse on these people and our gods will prevail when we go to war against them, against these people and their weird Yahweh God. That's where he takes them to. And from there he saw the edge of the people or part of the people or some of the people. In other words, Israel by this time was pretty numerous and spread out. They had conquered this area that had come and attacked them, so they'd kind of settled here for a while. God had not led them into the land because God's not going to do that until Moses is dead. And so they're, they're sort of camped in the wilderness. They're in that transition period. The old generation is dying out. As soon as the old generation dies out, including Moses, then they'll be ready to enter the land. So they're at the end of that generation and they're rising up with the new generation. They're camped out across the Jordan River in the Transjordan, what's today modern Jordan, the country. And... They're just hanging out there. They've occupied the territory. They've, they've occupied the villages and the strongholds of these kings that came to attack them. So when he sees them, he sees, he sees some of them. And so the question becomes in chapter 23, what is this oracle that he's supposed to give? What is this word going to be over this foreign, weird, former slave group people that came out of Egypt after 400 years of nothing and are now like the strongest army in this area. So what's going to happen? And the fact that it's going to happen at the high places of Baal is an added level of irony to the story of what we'll read next week because we're out of time. So come back next week. We'll pick it up with uh, Billum's first two oracles. We may get through all four, but uh, we're definitely going to get through the first two. If you're following along the study, read ahead. You know, come in here. Don't let this be the first time you hear this stuff. Read ahead, you get more out of it. Then when you're done, go back home and read it again and you get even more out of it. Uh, that's it. If there's extra food, otherwise, get back to work. Have a great day. If you want to support this ministry, you can do that on our webpage, which is on my iPad here. Talk to me about that. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Bye.